Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. All right, here we go. Let's... um Let's have this show. My name is Brady Huggett. I'm the host of Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. The guest for this show today is Jeffrey Lydon. If you follow this industry, you probably know who this is. He is the CEO of Vertex Pharmaceuticals. He was brought in um, as Vertex needed a bit of a pivot. They they had um, a hepatitis C drug on the market, had a great year of success, and then was sort of blown away by the massive success of Savaldi. And the company needed to figure out what was going to be next, and that was Jeff's job, and he did. He They, they now have a franchise in cystic fibrosis, and um, yeah, we talked about all that on this podcast. We talked about his childhood. He had very progressive parents. They, they pretty much seemed to let him do whatever he wanted. I mean, he he went to Europe kind of almost unsupervised at age 12 uh, with a friend. He he was a certified dive instructor by the time he was 11, doing these dives in, in Lake Michigan, Um He's very, very progressive. He went to progressive high school. He dropped out of high school early, not to you know start a band or drive race cars or anything, but because he wanted to go to college early. He actually started college early because he dropped out of high school. Um, he also mentioned he didn't know really that much about financing a company. He had lots of drug development and farm experience, but not about running a company, and he had to learn. And he may have told me this offline. I can't remember, but... Uh, at one point, they'd, they'd assigned uh, this woman with an MBA to just follow him around everywhere he went, and, and uh, until you know to teach him how to talk about financing for a company until he got up to speed on it. Now that's one way to do it. There are other ways. You could, for instance, go to the Master of Biotechnology Enterprise and Entrepreneurship Program at Johns Hopkins University. They have a list of great courses that deal with finance, including one called Finance and Biotechnology. They have a course called Funding a New Venture. You'll also have an opportunity there as a student to pitch your product, your company concept, to actual VCs. Um, to find out more about this program, go to enterprise.jhu.edu. Again, that's the Master of Biotechnology Enterprise and Entrepreneurship Program at Johns Hopkins University. And I mention this because they're the sponsor for this podcast. I think that's it. Anything else? Nope. So here it is, your first rounders podcast with Jeff Lydon. Listen up. Oh, no, 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 no. They asked me for their advice. This yeah. is a totally, I'm just friends with Bill. I'm doing this as a friend for free. I see. Okay. Just to give him advice. Yeah, because yeah, you've no, been no. in the street. We, we, we don't need it. Yeah, that's what I asked me that. Right. Um, okay, so I, I want to talk about your, your background. 
and growing up. And, you know, I know that you got most of your education, maybe all of it, in the Chicago area, but I don't know if you grew up there or, or sure, what. Sure. So, um, yeah, I had, a, I had a sort of very interesting childhood and background. So I grew up north of Chicago in a town called Glencoe, a suburb, yeah. very much a 1950s kind of town where you could, you know, ride your bike and around town and your mom never worried about you. Everybody left their doors unlocked, yeah. et cetera. Um, Is it my, still like that? Uh, it is. Well, I'll come back to that because we actually moved back to Glencoe at some point, and it still is like that, which wow. is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, my mom was a school teacher and school principal before she had me, and then she retired. Um, and my dad was a clinical psychologist, a PhD in psychology. They had a, um, a very, um, what at that time I think was a pretty radical view of child rearing. I had one sister, and both of us were raised the same way. Um, they had this strong belief that you should give children tremendous autonomy and freedom. Um, and and as, I'll just tell you examples of that. So um, um, when I was uh, nine, ten years old, they would allow me to go on the train to downtown Chicago with my best friend. When I was 12, I went to Europe to go skiing, just the two of us, two 12-year-olds by ourselves. How do we, um, wait, wait, how did you even, <laughs> I mean, they set it all up in advance. You're going to stay here? Yeah, but yes, but we helped too. We helped set it up, but they would help us set it all up. So um, someone made we staying. When you got off, the... it was part of a tour, like a tour thing. Okay, so it wasn't just the two of you there. But then we were on our own. Wow. I mean, once we wow, got wow, there, wow, wow, yeah. Um, and and I was sort of a I was a science nerd from a very young age, and and the form that that took initially was um, I liked to take things apart. Yeah. <laughs> when I was three or four years old, I couldn't put them back together very well. And so I'd sort of go around the house and like take a radio apart or take a telephone apart, which drove my mother absolutely nuts. And so they decided they would build this little play space for me, what I used to call my laboratory in the basement, um, in this, this little room down there. And that was the only place where I was allowed to take things apart and put them together. And I sort of had to say, look, can I take this apart? Because they didn't want me taking their stuff apart. And but like a, my bike, I could take down there, I could take it apart, I could put it back. But whatever there. you did, it had to be done in the basement. Yeah, down, that's where down, it down there. That, that was the taking apart place. Right, and right. then that evolved into, um, finally started to put stuff back together. Yeah. And I had, you know, you had Heath kits that I would build radios and all sorts of things and chemistry experiments that usually went okay. I never, I never burned the house down, but there were a few flashes and explosions. And that was like my area. And it was right next door to my dad's darkroom. He was a, he was a photographer that he, and he built a darkroom down there. And so from about seven, he would let me use the darkroom. And I would just go in there and I did a lot of photography with him and learned about, you know, in those days it was film, obviously, yeah, yeah, paper, yeah. so it was chemicals and and um, so I spent a lot of my time just playing around with that. So you go in there and watch the film. You watch the pictures I develop, develop. I take yeah, my exactly. own pictures, yeah. and he gave me a, gave me a little camera, and I would yeah. take my own pictures and and develop them. So so I started doing that when I was young. Um, well, can I ask you about this? So, yeah. Of if, so your dad's a psychologist. Yeah. And do you, do you think that their radical view on how to raise children came from? You know, his research from they're like, well, we need it. We want our kids to be independent. We want them to do this. We want them to do. Maybe a little, you know, when I look back at it, there were certainly some things he did as a psychologist when he raised us, but, but this was <laughs> like, more... Like, like what? Well, I'll tell you, this was more, um, actually, I think from my mom's side, she had been raised in, both of their parents were Russian immigrants, and she had been raised in this very progressive, actually, communist household, and her father um, really believed that kids should be empowered at a very young age. Uh, she was, and, and um, she was sort of a very radical feminist um, as an adult, um, and she believed it too. You know, she she taught me how to read when I was two, I think. And uh, then we had these we had these shelves of books, and the idea was that there was a huge sort of shelf for me and my sister, and they were just stocked with all kinds of books, and we could just go 
sort of read whatever we wanted. And when we ran out, they would they would restock it. My dad collected books too, so um, that's sort of how we were raised. Um, in terms of your question about my dad and, and being a psychologist, um, I would say the biggest thing was um, he, he took a sort of Socratic psychologist style of uh, dealing with our sort of you know growing up issues. So he would always just sort of ask you the question, like you, you, I'd come in and say, "So, so happened at school," and he'd say, "Yeah, so." What'd you think about that? <laughs> How did that feel? And uh, we'd sort of talk about it, but, but more asking questions than giving answers. To help you finished. figure out yourself yeah. what you were feeling and how yeah. to process it. Yeah, that's yeah. that's interesting. That's also sort of empowering, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I think it's really interesting. And I ask a lot. One of the things we'll talk about in my management style is it's it's a very Socratic, go on rounds management style, and just talk with people about what they're thinking. Also useful being a physician. Yeah. 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 Okay, so you're taking these things apart, which to me sounds like you're leaning <laughs> yeah. toward almost like an engineer or something at that age. Yes. Yeah, so I actually really wanted to be first an engineer and then an oceanographer. That was my thing, and it was the time of Jacques Cousteau. Yeah. And actually, one of the things, again, that they allowed me to do was to um, to take scuba diving lessons when I was 10. And when I was 11, I was actually not only a certified diver, but a certified instructor. And uh, actually, this is not such a happy story. So I, we would go out and do these. I, I, it was my instructor, and I was the assistant instructor. I was the kid, the assistant instructor. And we would take these groups of three or five people out, teach them to dive in a pool, and then you'd go out and dive in, in Lake Michigan. Um and uh, on one of those dives, um, one of the f- young adults actually panicked, um, shot to the surface, got the bends, and, and died. And died? Oh, and, my God. And, um, and that was, a, it was the first time I had ever been associated with something like that. I was probably 12 or 13. And, and actually, that was sort of, I, I just um, shied away. I, I still scuba and snorkel, but I never really was serious about it again. You know, I just because of, of that reason, it sort of scared you off. Yeah, so yeah. you're down there with them, and this person just said, I mean, did they even they tell panicked. you they just they shut were up? Claust- you know, typically yeah. what happens is you get claustrophobic. We were in a sort of a tighter space. They panicked. They ripped their thing out. They shot it. Oh, my the God. Surface, and it was yeah. like from 75 feet or so. And so, yeah. Okay, so that's, <laughs> that's, that, that got you off the oceanography. Okay, so then... So then uh, when the real science thing came for me in, actually in fifth grade. So I had this teacher, science teacher, named Mrs. Giancana. Um, well, actually, let me tell you my school story first because that's sort of an interesting one. So. When I went to school, public school, um, I went to this very progressive public school in, in Glencoe called North School. Um, and they had put in place a program, it was actually pretty amazing because this was in the early 1960s, that was this progressive learning program, meaning that for reading and for math, there was a set of modules. And for some kids, anyway, there was a group of kids who could go as fast as they wanted through those modules. So you didn't have to sit in class every day. You just If you finished module one and you finished the questions in the test, you went to module two, module three, module four, etc. You could sort of go as fast as you wanted. And um, by about halfway through first grade, I had pretty much finished those first grade modules. And so they said, what the heck, we'll just give you the second grade modules. And so I did that. And and the result of that was I pretty much finished all the first and second grade by the end of the first, first grade year. Yeah. And so I, they skipped me ahead in second grade. So I went straight to third grade. Um, and, and it was a very progressive school with a lot of sort of problem-solving kind of learning. And when I got to fifth grade, I had this teacher, Mrs. Giancana, who was my science teacher. It's a, this jump that you made from second to third grade, well, you skipped second grade, right? Yeah. So that's a couple of years. Did, did you one, remember that? One year. I skipped that one. Well, no, no, but I mean in age. Yeah. These kids are yeah, now yeah, suddenly yeah. two yeah. years older than you. Did you feel that? Were you like, gosh, I'm... No, Not at all. Not oh, at all. It really wasn't. And I did it later on, as we'll talk about it. I just it never really it didn't strike me or get huh. to me. Okay, keep going. So fifth grade. Um, so fifth grade, I got there. Mrs. Giancana. So she was amazing scientist and science teacher. 
and um, and so we had a very we had a very creative science curriculum that was looking at things like you know virology and and the early days of genetics and stuff that you don't normally do in fifth grade. But um, she also ran this lab where you sort of dissected frogs and did chemistry experiments, with, in which I just loved. So she would let me stay after school and actually give me special experiments that I could do. She would sit there and be grading papers yeah. and stuff, and I would just stay for a couple, two, three hours after school and do experiments. And I wrote her this paper on virology that was just sort of on my own. And that's really where I got hooked in science. That, that I knew then that I was going to be a scientist. That's the I thing. I just loved doing it. And, you know, it's interesting... I have a lot of friends, obviously, who are, who are scientists and very successful scientists. And when you talk to them, almost every one of them can tell you that kind of story, not from a college professor or their graduate advisor, or, but, but it's usually that fifth grade teacher, seventh grade teacher, maybe in early high school, somebody, or camp, they went, somebody hooks them on science and they get hooked early. And it's one of the things that led us to develop our STEM education program at Vertex to be a very yeah. early program. We want to catch these kids early. Yeah. The, the other thing I've noticed, because I've done a lot of these sort of talks too, is uh, DNA has played a big part in this certain generation. People, they, they got a hold of it, they looked at it, and they thought, this is amazing, and that brought them into science. A little bit for you too. For huh? sure, yeah. for sure. Because remember that early virology was the first molecular biology. Molecular biology came out of a group of virologists that came over and then started to do genetics yeah. and simple organisms. And so that was the transition. You had these virologists... You had these um, biologists who came over, became molecular biologists and geneticists, and then molecular biology just grew out of that. And, and that was the beginning, beginning of that, because yeah. DNA had just been, the structure yeah. of DNA had just been described. Yeah. Okay, so you're headed, when, by the time you head into high school, you already know that you, but, but it, I think, and you correct me where I'm wrong, you were probably thinking about being a, a physician. Okay? No, actually, no, actually I wasn't, so we'll come back to that. I was really thinking about being a scientist, and um, the physician thing came much, much later, which I'll, I'll tell you about. And so in high school, you know, I, I pursued a sort of rapid track science program, um, you know, went through all the advanced um, placement science courses, all the advanced placement math courses, and, and English and history and all that. And then um, I had a best friend who's the same best friend that went skiing with me when I was 12 and uh-huh. who went to Chicago oh, yeah, yeah. when he was yeah. nine. And he was also, you know, sort of a, a fast track student. And so we got um, into sophomore year and at New at Nutria, this was a big public high school in Chicago, you were allowed to take a practice SAT if you wanted in your sophomore year, a year earlier than you normally would in junior. So the two of us said, what the heck, let's see what it's like. And we did it. And we both scored very well. And then we started to talk among ourselves, like, you know, we could use these SAT scores to get into some colleges early. if we want. They're good <laughs> enough. And my dad had gone to the University of Chicago, um, and so he knew that they had a program that would accept high school students before they graduated, and had had for a number of years, a small number. And um, and so he encouraged both of us to go down there and talk to them, and, and we did. We just you know we got on the train, went down to the south side of Chicago, and uh, talked to them, and they were t- totally open to it. You know, send us your transcripts, send us everything, and so we said, you know, what the heck, we're going to do it. We apply to college um, for after junior year, so we yeah. skip senior year. Yeah. Um, and the funniest part was the two of us went to see our college counselor junior year then to tell him we were going to be you know, applying. And he was just aghast. I mean, absolutely aghast. And he, and he said to me, you're going to flunk out of college. When you flunk out of college, not only are you going to not have a college degree, you're going to be a high school dropout. Yeah. And don't think we're going to take you back here. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's going to be okay. Why did he, looking at your transcripts, why would he think you're going to flunk out of college? He, he just, just maturity? I mean, I was really young. I was 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I had skipped a grade right. initially. and now, So I was 15. I was like, 15-year-olds 15 shouldn't be going to college. 
Most 15-year-olds, probably, uh, but, but not you. Yeah, yeah. It, was fun. it was funny. So I went down to UFC with my friend, and he, he also got in. And, um, and just to sort of, you know, set, that was 1968, I think. So 1968 was a pretty yeah. amazing time in colleges, right? It was 60 or 70, maybe 70, something like that. So it was a wild thing. I mean, there, there was, you know, a hippie scene and a drug scene. And the University of Chicago was this amazing place. And, and it's really the first place that had a huge impact on me because, you know, two things happened there. One, you could take anything you wanted. I mean, if you went your freshman year and you said, I want to take graduate physics course, they go like, okay, you want to do that? Give it a shot. Um, any subject you wanted because there was this cross-disciplinary thing. So if you were a biology major and you wanted to take a bunch of music courses, I was like, yeah, that, that makes hmm. sense because there were people who had done that for many years there yeah. for cross-disciplines. And then you had, unlike many places, you had these amazing professors as your teachers as a freshman. So my freshman year, my humanities teacher was Ed Levy, who was the president of the university, former attorney general. Um, I just an incredible legal mind. And he was teaching freshman humanities to 13 of us, right? And he was like wow. the scariest intellectual mind you could possibly see. And I remember when I first went there, we, you know, this friend of mine and I were both in the same class, and uh, we thought, you know, hey, we're pretty smart. We've always gotten straight A's and this and this and and we started talking with this guy, and he just, he tore our ideas <laughs> to pieces. And he's like, no, 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 no. And he, and he would just take you apart and, and send you home to think, and then you'd write a paper, you'd get a C. Like, I'd never gotten a C on a paper yeah, in my life. Yeah, yeah. And i go like, no, i got to do better than this. And I go, but he would go see me in office hours, and he'd walk me through the reasoning. And by the end of the year, I was getting A's, but I was thinking a whole different whole way. whole different way, yeah. So yeah. The, also, you just mentioned 13 people in that class. Were all the classes that small? Not all, but, but many of them were 13 to 18 people. So it's not, the school was progressive in its curriculum but but also you know you get the attention of this, the professors there yeah now when you took you know introductory chemistry there were 150 right, people right 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 so but it's in smaller ones but these humanities class in particular because they had this core curriculum which was amazing that you had to, everybody had to take they were very small class sizes they were completely discussion it was a read and discuss and write kind of class um and you had these these professors that were really just just truly amazing well, let me ask this. So, you know, you had this guidance counselor tell you that you're going to flunk out of college. You get to college, and lo and behold, you get a C, right? You never got one before. Did you have this moment where you think, maybe I am not quite ready for this? No. But I, I did have this moment where it was like, I realized, you know what happened? And it's happened to me many times in my career. You sort of reach a place in your current situation, like at high school, right? I, I was, this friend of mine was one of the top, whatever, five students, yeah. three students in the entire high school, of yeah. 5,000 people. And so you're like the, at the top. And then you go on to the next stage, and you realize you're at the bottom. I mean, there's a whole other world of talent and um, intellect and discourse, and you're starting down here, and you've got to climb, work really hard to climb back up. It's a bigger pond. Yeah, yeah. much bigger. And, and that's happened to me several times in my career. I think it's actually fun, because I always look at it like, wow, there's a world out there I didn't understand. And I see it now, and I want to work on climbing up that next mountain. That's fascinating. I mean, the, the, the idea that you would... Um... You know, you go, well, I have, to, I have to reach another gear to succeed in this pond. But maybe there is no other gear for some people. I don't know. Well, I'll tell you a funny story about that. So, so also, you know, a very eye-opening thing for me. So I had always been really, really good in math. I mean, yeah. I could just zoom along. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so when I got to college, I took this second-year calculus course because I placed out of the first-year course. Um, and I was moving along and, and doing well. I was getting A's, actually. But um, there were some problems that were really hard. And there was a guy on my floor in my dorm who actually was a math genius. He was already taking graduate math courses as a freshman, and I used to go see him with these problems, right? And, um, and I'd work really hard on him for two or three hours, and I couldn't get it. And he would 
pick up the thing, take one look, and I go, oh, yeah, yeah, just, just write the answer down for me. And there again, I realized, and that was a different thing. I realized as time went on, and he just sort of did that, like, I'm not going to be a world-class mathematician because yeah. that's a different trajectory than even I'm capable of, right? And he is capable of it. And the most amazing thing is he went along and he actually got his PhD, but he hit a wall, at a much, much higher wall eventually. And so he ended up being a, a faculty member, but at a sort of second-rate department because there was a world beyond him, too, where the and real reach, mathematical yeah. geniuses went. And, and, and it's just a, it's a different trajectory. And, and so that was really interesting and eye-opening, too. Okay, so, the, so you're thinking maybe math is not going to be the thing, but, but science is, you know, that is your thing. Yeah. So then how, how do we get into, into that? So I was um, I really pre-med only because it was all where all the science courses were. And again, all the way through college, my, um, my um, idea was to be a scientist, just a basic scientist. Um, and particularly a geneticist and molecular biologist, and there were a couple of very good courses there that I took um, to um, in molecular biology that only increased my interest. That I did, I did really want them. And then um, at the end of junior junior year in college, um, I did an inter a summer job yeah. in a lab. Um, it was a herpes virus lab, and. Um, and herpes virus obviously was an important medical issue at the time as well. And I started working with these two professors on it, on molecular biology and genetics of herpes virus. And that was the first time I had actually been really exposed to the medicine side. And I started reading these papers about the medical side of herpes and working with them on ideas about vaccines and uh-huh. other things. And suddenly I realized that there was this other world. It wasn't just the pure medicine world. It was that you can take the science and turn it into medicine. Yeah. And you can do this translation, which I'd never, I didn't understand before. And then it sort of suddenly hit me like, yeah, you, if, if I can understand the medicine and I can understand the science, I can walk that road over and over again. And the way you do that is by going to doing an MD-PhD program. And so my advisor in that lab, her name was Nietzsche Frankel, um, you know, very much encouraged me to do that. UFC had had a very active MD-PhD program. And, um, and so I applied actually for to skip my senior year in college and do it and they wouldn't let me do it because i was only 17 or 18 17 years old yeah and there was a dean there he was okay guy but he wasn't and he just said no you gotta wait a year you'll you'll get in but you gotta wait a year but i pretty much finished all of my um, undergraduate courses that i needed for requirements and so it was a fabulous year my senior year in college i split between working in the lab actually on my phd and taking graduate science courses in immunology, virology, et cetera, et cetera, that I was going to need for my PhD, too. So by the time I entered medical school the next year, I was already about halfway done with my PhD, just in terms of research and courses. And so I did the first two years of medical school, which are the preclinical years. Yeah. Then you typically take a break and you do the lab years to get your PhD. Uh-huh. And I took, I think, a year and a half there, two years to finish my PhD, and then went right back to medical school and finished up. So I could, I could finish it in a hurry because I had that senior year of pre-research where I'd already published a few papers and things. So, and by the time you finished your PhD with the MD, how old were you? 20? My PhD, I was um, 21, and my MD, I think I was 23. Did you, did you ever have, I mean, so you missed a lot of things that normal, <coughs> not normal, a lot of things that kids might do, right? Uh, Some. In high school. And co- I mean, did, did you have any of that in your life? Or were you just, oh, yeah. No, you I, so like I was a varsity tennis player. I was ranked in the Midwest. The best thing about going to college when I was 15 is I had an 18-year-old girlfriend. 
and uh, which <laughs> my parents didn't really like very much, but I really liked. I bet, yeah. <laughs> and um, and so I did actually. You know, I would say the things that I missed, if you will, is you know I spent a lot of my time outside time, um, you know, in the lab or working, so I wasn't doing lots of partying. Yeah. And, but but sports, you know, I played squash and tennis through high school. I played the violin. I was a really serious violinist. I had this girlfriend, a series of great girlfriends. Um, so that part of it, you know, I somehow fit in there. Yeah, but you didn't do the the, the dumb stuff that many, uh, many. Yeah, no. Look, look. I'm not saying so it's a negative fun stuff. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, don't know. I think <laughs> it's a, it's a positive. Um, okay, so so you finish this PhD MD program. You're 23, right? And I think you you do see patients for a while, don't you? Oh, for 20 years. Yeah. So so but then while I went doing to research. Yeah. So okay. I went to the Brigham. Uh, for my at Harvard for my internship and residency, um, because at that point um, most of the work I'd been doing in the lab was relevant to immunology and oncology, uh-huh. and the Dana Farber, which was affiliated with the Brigham, was really the premier hospital slash research institution in oncology. And I my assumption was I'd go to the Brigham. They had this combined residency fellowship program where you could do your medical residency at the Brigham and then go do your oncology fellowship at the Farber, which is what I went there to do. Uh-huh. Um, and then, then I, in my first two years in um, residency, I did two rotations at the Farber, oncology, clinical oncology rotations, and two rotations in cardiology. Um, and, and I just could not take the emotional drain of the oncology. You know, you'd admit these patients who were 24 years old, you'd work for two weeks to save their life, they would go home, they'd come back two weeks later and die. It, it was just devastating. Everybody there died, no matter what you did. Um, and then I did cardiology, which was the opposite. And Brigham Cardiology was very famous. Eugene Brownwald was running it. It was sort of the premier cardiology program in the country. And, um, and it was the time when cardiology was revolutionizing care, right? You, you, you could do things for these people, right? They, they'd come in with a heart attack. You could yeah. give them thrombolytics and yeah. they'd go home to, yeah. you know, a, few week, a week later. Um, and so it was just this incredible time of sort of science intervention. So I went, after my second year of residency, um, I went to see Dr. Brownwald, who was the chairman of medicine and just a giant in American medicine. And I said, look, Dr. Brownwald, I have this horrible problem. You know, I, I love immunology, molecular biology, research, um, but I hate clinical oncology. I just can't handle it. And I love clinical cardiology, but there's no molecular biology in clinical car- in cardiology. What do I do? And he goes, he, this was one of the real sort of turning points. Where he goes, no problem. We're going to get you a clinical cardiology fellowship at the Brigham, and we're going to put you in one of these leading molecular biology immunology labs at the Farmer, and, and we'll pay for it as part of your fellowship. And it was just like, seriously? You know, no one really does that. And yeah. Was, You're going to? Yeah. And he said, you know why? Because 10 years from now, this is, he is a visionary, 10 years from now, there will be molecular biology and cardiology, yeah. and you'll be one of the leaders because you've already done it. Yeah. And that was incredibly precious. So that's what I did. I, I did... Research at the Farber, clinical cardiology at the Brigham. Um, Combine those two. When I left the Brigham for my first job, which was a Howard Hughes Medical Institute job at the University of Michigan, um, where I both saw patients but spent most of my time doing research. So you went back to I went to Michigan, yeah. yeah. Um, I went to give my job seminar for the cardiology division, um, and I gave this set research seminar on molecular immunology. And at the end, the chief of cardiology stands up and goes like, that seemed, that was super impressive. It was incredible. What does it have to do with cardiology? And the chairman of medicine, who was Bill Kelly, who was really hiring me for the Hughes Institute, was in the back of the room, and he goes, today, nothing, but three years from now, everything. 
you're hired. Yeah, good. That's <laughs> um, amazing. And, and so I did it. And I don't know how much you know about the, um, you know, no reason for you to know. The Hughes Institute of Michigan was a very, very, very special place. So Bill Kelly, who was the chairman of medicine, uh-huh. got a Hughes Institute funded there. And they tried to use sort of the classical Hughes model, which was hire a senior investigator, a very famous investigator, and let them help hire some junior investigators and sort of mentor them around some themes. And that was the typical Hughes model. For a variety of reasons, they couldn't get the senior investigator that they, or several that they were looking at. And so Bill came back to them with this idea, let's just hire 10 young investigators and let them do their own thing with no supervision. You know, it comes back to this no supervision thing. Yeah. So he hired a first set, Francis Collins, who's currently the head of the NIH, and David Ginsburg, who's still at Michigan, actually a very famous hematology investigator. and then with Francis and David, they recruited the rest of us. Almost all of us from the Brigham, almost all of us knew each other. So myself and Gary Nabel and Betsy Nabel, um, uh, David and Francis, Jim Wilson, who was doing gene therapy. Yeah. Um, so there were 10 of us. And we show up there, we're all, you know, 28 to 30, we're setting up our labs for the first time. There's nobody to manage. We're sitting in this building. We were, we were the building. There was nobody else there. And we just worked together to figure out, like, how do you write a grant? And how do you, all those things you have to do to set up your life. How do you hire people? How do you, you know, set up research projects? And it was an amazing time. You, you look at those people and what they've accomplished, right? And the things that came out of there, right? The first positional cloning of the CFTR gene from Francis and really positional cloning. Jim and Gary and yeah. I in gene therapy, right? David in molecular hematology. I mean, just every one of those people. Craig Thompson was there, who runs Memorial Sloan Kettering. He's, he and I shared an office and his discoveries around oncology. There was a five-year, and we were only there for five years together, but that five-year period of time was an amazing time in science and all of us sort of working together on these projects. We're all personal friends, and we all had, you know, wives and young families. And you, you did, did too, you were married by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. And uh, we did things, a lot of things socially together. It was, it was just a very, very unique experience to be there. Do, do you and think- then Bill left, and the whole thing blew up. You've got these, these, this collection of minds, right? Everybody there is very bright. And do you think that um, everyone would have gone on to have s- successful careers regardless? But, but putting them together did something beyond, that's, yeah? That's what I would say. I would say I, I, I'm, for sure, I'm sure Francis and, and Craig and Gary, they would have all had successful careers. But there's no doubt there was a secret sauce and a specialness about working together that accelerated that and also took us into new areas. I mean, I, I would have never been doing anything in gene therapy if I wasn't sitting next to Jim who was having these ideas. And it's like, hey, we can do the same thing in muscle or in the heart. And, and we started doing that. I, I think it was true for each of us. That's so fascinating. Um, okay, so so this is still, you are you still thinking about, I mean, when, when I guess the question is, when do you begin to think about actually being in yeah, business? Yeah. So what happened was, um, I was always doing really very basic science. If you really looked at my lab, we were studying in, in Michigan, um, uh, how genes are regulated, how you take a common precursor cell and it can have the potential to turn into a blood cell, like a T cell, or a heart cell, or a vascular cell. Uh-huh. Um, and that's a basic genetic switch transcription problem. And to answer that problem, we started to have to put genes with reporter constructs into these different cell types, into muscle, skeletal muscle, or heart muscle. Or, and, and we were interrogating the system. Two things happened which were, one was sort of fortuitous. It turns out the same families of transcription factors, different members, 
are the ones that actually turn that precursor cell into a T cell versus a heart cell. So once we found the one that turns it into a T cell, actually its brother turned it into a heart cell. So this prediction of immunology is actually going to be very related to cardiology. Yeah, yeah really related, much yeah. more so than we had ever thought. That was a really amazing insight. Um, but then the other thing was we realized, and I had a couple of fellows who were working with me who were clinicians, realized like, we're putting genes into skeletal muscle every day. We're putting genes into heart muscle every day. We're putting genes into teeth. We could actually do that therapeutically, right? We could actually use turn that into gene therapy. So we started working on that in the lab, and we started working on different vectors um, with Jim's group, you know, DNA, adenovirus, AV, putting things into the heart of a living animal uh-huh. using catheters. And we developed this set of intellectual property around how you would do that. And um, and uh, there was a company on the West Coast, and Gary and Betsy Nabel were also doing that in their own way in, in the vessel law. And, um, and there was a company on the West Coast called Vical that was just getting refunded by one of the big venture groups. And they were turning themselves into an early gene therapy company. And a couple of the VCs came out to see Gary and I and Betsy and um, said, you know, we want to license your technology. We want to transform the company into basically a cardiovascular and skeletal muscle gene therapy company. You guys will be the refounders of the company. I remember. stock, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so we did that. That was our first... Um, adventure into business um, and that company then got taken public um, and we continued to develop our own technologies as well as working with the company but they weren't licensed there um, and then I moved to the University of Chicago Gary and Betsy stayed at Michigan but we had this very much more advanced set of IP around putting viral vectors in through catheters into the heart and the vessel and so we started a, comp- a second company called Cardiogene uh-huh. Um, and we were getting ready to take that public, and actually Boston Scientific came to see us and said, we'll just buy the company from you before you take it public, because we want all that IP. And so they bought the company from us. So that was our first for- my first forays into the business side of but, things. But those two companies, they licensed in your technology, you were considered a scientific founder? A co- uh, what I would call a refounder of Vical because it was yeah. being refounded, and we were the founders of Cardiogen, just yeah. us. But did you? So I mean, when you were with Vical, did you constantly go to the West Coast? Yes, yeah, okay. So you had your hand. Okay, all yeah. right, okay, yeah. All right, so then Boston Scientific buys Cardiogen, and You're... we then start working with Boston Scientific uh-huh. on the technology as well. And then almost the same time, well, actually a little bit later, because then I I had been I went to University of Chicago to be chief of cardiology and run a new cardiovascular research center. Uh-huh. So I had five assistant professors and probably a hundred some researchers working in this center, and we continued to work on gene therapy and, and skeletal muscle in particular. Um, but a lot of basic stuff. It was most of it was just very basic science. Um, and then I was recruited back to Harvard to be a professor at the medical school in the School of Public Health. And just about the same time, Abbott, who, which I'd never done anything with, um, had always had a physician scientist on their board. And the physician scientist at the time was a, a very famous immunologist named K. Frank Austin, fabulous guy from Harvard. And there was a mandatory retirement age. If you got to be, I think, 75, you had to retire. So he reached mandatory retirement age. They were looking for a replacement. He knew me. Um, he had sort of suggested, hey, you know, like, Talk to him. You know this guy yeah. is, is, you know, me 30 years ago or whatever, yeah. Yeah. Um, young, younger version. And so they came and talked to me and, and um, recruited me to the board. And uh, one of the things that I, and then I moved to Harvard, and one of the first things that I did with the new CEO there, who was, came from the diagnostic side, was to uh, sort of put together a strategy for the pharma business, because the pharma business was in a little bit of, 
a little bit of disarray. They didn't have a clear strategy. And I presented it um, with, with him to the board, and, and they liked it. And um, a few weeks later... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. He flew out to Boston and said, uh, you know, we, I really like the strategy. I like how you're thinking about it, but you don't have enough skin in the game. You should come run it. And, um, and I said to him, Honestly, you're crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, I've never run more than 500 people. This was 17,000 people, $5 billion a year business. Oh my God, it was that large. Um, it, and that was at the beginning. We'll talk about it at the end. Um, I, don't, you know, I, I, I said, no, I, I just don't think. I have a chair professorship at Harvard. I have this great you know, laboratory, wonderful young kids. I, I don't see it. We just moved a few years ago. Um, and then um, there was a board member there named David Jones, who was the founder of Humana. A really amazing guy, a serial entrepreneur, really smart, and um, and then David gives me a call and he goes like, "I'm gonna, I just want to talk to you about this job," and I said, "Okay," and he said, um, "I think you ought to take it because your whole career to me, David, seems like it's about translating science into medicines." And he goes, "You know, you can't do that in academia because it just doesn't work. You know, a twenty-person company really hard to take it all the way." A place like Abbott is where you can do it. And I said, well, I, I agree with that, but I'm just not sure I'm the right person to do it. And he, yeah. said, he said, I'm going to tell you a reason you should take this job. No one else will ever offer it to you. And I said, what do you mean, David? And, and he said, no one will trust a 40-year-old professor at Harvard to come run their $5 billion business. And the reasons that we trust you are, A, we definitely need new leadership in the businesses in a point of, you know, he said turmoil, but a point of yeah. in transition. And B, we know you. We actually have known you for a year and a half, which is why we trust you to do it. No one else will ever make you that offer. And I said, well, I'm not sure if that's a compliment or an <laughs> insult. Yeah. But, but actually, I started to think about it, and I realized, you know what? He, he's right. If I actually want to do this thing, this translational thing really well, this is the kind of place. And, and this would give me, actually, the ability to impact it. 
And so after a few months, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a try. So for a few months, you thought about it. You, you, yeah. you kept talking to them. You talked to your family about moving again. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how old were your kids then? They were um, in second grade and sixth grade. So that was hard. And, and we moved right back to Glencoe, the same town that we had lived in in Chicago. So they did go back to the same school, the same friends. But still, they had been out for a couple, couple of years, years yeah. and that was yeah. hard. Your wife was fine with it too. Uh, I mean, yeah, eventually, she has been my biggest supporter all along. She's enabled yeah. me to. What do did all she do? Did she do? She was a nurse by training. Um, she had, when I met her, she was running a business that was called Stork Support, where that she founded, where um, she hired a bunch of her nursing friends. And, and this was in the days where, when you had a baby in the hospital, you would stay in the hospital for three to five days. Yeah. And the health plans wanted to get women out of the hospital. Yeah. And so she would provide a nurse at home to help a new mom and baby. If they, and, and the deal she did with these health plans is, is they would pay for it if the mom left the hospital after two days. So yeah. it was a way for them to save a lot of money, yeah. but they could get this home care. And it was a hugely successful business in Boston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so then we, she sold that business when we moved to Ann Arbor, which is how we could afford to buy a house. Yeah, okay. So you're, <laughs> you're back, you're back, you've taken your kids back to the uh, Midwest, and you, you start working at Abbott, right? Yeah, you're, and, you're the chief scientific officer, chief operating officer. Yeah, so I was I was running. It was, yes, and I was essentially running the entire pharma business from research through commercial manufacturing, everything. It was, right. it was sort of two thirds of the business. And was this overwhelming when you started? Totally. So so I thought I knew how to make drugs. I I didn't. I mean, it was. I certainly didn't know the complexities of that financial world. Um, and so I, I said, I, I always say it was like another internship. It was like three years, right? The first year you try not to kill anybody. Uh-huh. The second year, you sort of know what's going on. You can actually add some value. By the time you get to the third year, you're, you actually get it. You're, you're getting quite good at it. And then um, one of the key things in the strategy was Abbott had always been a small molecule company, and this was just at the time when antibodies and biologics were developing, and mm-hmm. I felt very strongly they should get into the biologics antibody business. Um, and so after a year or a year and a half, um, we bought the... Um, um, the pharmaceutical business of um, which was called Knoll. So we bought Knoll, which was their pharmaceutical business, but only because they had this amazing human monoclonal antibody group and facility out in Worcester, Mass. And Humira, at that time, was just ending phase one, and they had the first fully human monoclonal antibody in Humira. I was an immunologist. I understood exactly what the implications of this were going to be. And so we bought it really for Humira, um, I think the sales projections for Humira and the deal model were you know, something like seven or eight hundred million dollars peak. You know, I think last year it did fourteen or fifteen billion dollars. Yeah. Seven indications, and so we then developed Humira for these multiple indications, and it came with this idea of a, of a pipeline and a drug. Because um, people used to always ask me, "What's your pipeline at, at Abbott?" And I'd say, well, "We have a pipeline and a drug. There's seven different indications in this one drug." Um, and that was just tremendously fun and rewarding and amazing to just transform these diseases for patients. For sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, it but was. It was. You yeah. did that. So that was. Well, you said the first three years you're sort of like getting your head around this space. So it was about then, a year and a half in, a little more than a year and a half in, we did the, that deal. Ah, so then you had another four and a half years or so. Yeah, yeah. is that right? Almost well, five. Yeah. yeah. So we, that let us take. We didn't get all the indications done, but we got I think four or five of them done, and the yeah, rest enough. were all, all yeah. rolling. Um, so how did you leave? Why did you leave? You know, it was interesting. I um, the real question for I was what was I then fifty? I was just fifty, and the question for me was sort of what's next. I, I had done that. It was you know we took the 
pharmaceutical business from five billion to seventeen and a half billion. Yep. We took it to forty four thousand employees. We launched Colitrin Humira. I mean, it was it was really an amazing experience. But I'd sort of done that, and one thing throughout my career, you'll see it. You know, I generally go into these things when they're broken, fix them, do some things. I, my thing is not to run something when it's just sort of on it's autopilot. Yeah, yeah. Some other people, I think, can be better at that. We'll come back to that because Vertex is sort of exactly the same thing. Um, and uh, and so when I looked ahead, you know, the CEO was about my age, just a little bit bigger. I was the number two. I was going to be, the choice was stay as the number two and run this business or go do something else. So um, a new challenge. A actually. new challenge. Yeah. And so just at that same time, several of my friends were starting a life sciences venture capital firm called Claris. Claris, right. In um, Boston, San Francisco. They were, what was really unique about them is that everybody in the firm, all the six managing directors, including myself, um, actually had operating experience. They weren't just um, investors. So they'd all worked and developed drugs. And, yep. Um, they're also a very, really good group of people, and we all liked each other. And we came up with this novel concept for a venture firm where the six of us would found it, and, um, and we would all be equal. So there wasn't any hierarchy. It was six managing directors. In order to get a deal approved, unanimous vote from six people. We all got exactly the same economics, so there was no difference in economics. And that was a different model at the time. For, but it was, I, I, it was very attractive to me. And I wanted to try out this thing of how to, what does it feel like to work with entrepreneurs and help entrepreneurs. So we, we did that. Um, was it hard to get all six to agree on deals? No, no because we developed a really interesting process. We, um, <laughs> we would have our weekly meetings. We'd go through every deal together, all six of us. Um, and if you had a question about a deal or a problem with a deal as the diligence was evolving, you'd bring it up early and we'd argue it out. So by the time you got to the end, I mean, you, if I brought a deal forward and someone was having a problem every week in a row and I couldn't answer it, yeah. you knew. It's not going to You may as well stop. Right. So I think there were maybe only once or twice in the entire time of investments I remember where at the end there was actually a vote because it was, I everybody see. was in. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was incredibly fun. I mean, it was just to work with young entrepreneurs every day and to be able to actually help them on the operating side to add that value, not just writing checks. Yeah. Um, to, to really pick cutting-edge science and, and do it was really, really fun. Um, and I never thought I'd go back to the operating side. I, I was offered a couple of big pharma CEO jobs and uh, just, just had no interest. But I joined the board of, um, of Vertex, totally independent of Claris, because I knew the chairman and he was going to be retiring and they were looking for somebody to Who was the chairman? Him. It was um, a guy named Charlie um, Saunders, who was also the chairman of Genentech. Board, actually, he's yeah. a really yeah. amazing guy, um, and he was in his eighties. Um, and unfortunately, before he could retire, he actually had a had a large stroke, um, and so he didn't I, die. He just had no. Stroke. He's yeah. he's um, yeah. Um, it was it was terrible actually, because he was an incredibly vibrant, super active uh, guy. Um, anyway, so I took over as lead independent director, and. Um, I sort of, I just fell in love with the company. It's one of those things that happens and you don't realize it. Um, because I had always had this vision that you could create a different kind of biotech company that could actually serially develop transformative drugs. The, the problem in the biotech industry, as you probably know, is, is there's a handful, maybe 70, 80 companies, that have actually discovered and developed one drug. Mm -hmm. Two, you go down to the 30-ish or so, and by the time you get to four drugs, you're down below five companies in the entire history of biotech. Yeah, we could probably name them, yeah. And yeah. we could name them. And it's, 
it's because it's so hard to serially innovate. Um, and so I had this, this idea that if you could create the right business model and the right science model, you could actually serially innovate. And the, and the idea was only aim at transformative therapies targeting the underlying cause of the disease and do it for specialty diseases that had very low SG&A or sales and marketing expense requirements. So didn't need big sales forces, didn't need direct-to-consumer advertising, yeah. didn't need big marketing budgets. Because then you could invest a small amount in SGNA and take all the rest of it and put it back in R&D, and that's what would drive that, that serial innovation. So Vertex had this incredible scientific sort of capability engine. Um, like most small biotech companies, the strategy was just follow the science wherever it takes you. And that wasn't working because we were going into areas that didn't make sense commercially or required big sales forces or... And, and so I had this, I, and it was just at the time that Vertex, I don't know much you know the history, that Vertex had just launched in CVEC for... So this is, this is like 2011 2011. Yeah, right. So they, they've got... They made this breakthrough drug in right. CVEC for HCV, Hep yeah. C, um, doubled the cure rates. I mean, that was truly remarkable, right? Launched it, fastest drug ever to a billion dollars. This is when I was on the board. And unfortunately, ignored the fact that this was going to... B combination therapy eventually, and they only had one drug, and others had other drugs and better drugs. Uh -huh. and as you know, Gilead then bought Pharmacet, developed their own combination therapy, which was more effective and much more tolerable and shorter duration, yeah. and just just blew and see that out of the water. Literally Except the entire to zero, yeah, yeah, to zero. It's it was a great thing for patients, right? Incredible innovation, serial innovation. Unfortunately, not in the same company, right? right? I, let's talk about this because I, I was um, I was reading a little bit about. Uh, about this historical aspect of Vertex's life. And much of the business writing is about, like, this is a failure on Vertex's part. It's a failure. It's a failure. And, you know, when you read that, you go, well, it's a failure for analysts and it's a failure for investors because they are expecting, you know, $8 billion in revenue and they got about, what, I don't know, maybe two before the drug was right. was taken off the market. But it is not a failure for patients, totally, right? I mean, totally, totally. This, if you look at HCV as a field, forget about companies for a yeah, minute, yeah. That, it's one of the great stories of scientific innovation, right? No therapy, going to a very um, cumbersome therapy that didn't work very well, right? Interferon ribavirin, 20% yeah. cure rates. Yeah. Going to telaprevir plus those two, you know, 60% in north cure rates. Going to the new triples like uh, Harvoni, uh, single pill, 12 weeks of therapy, 96% cure rates yeah. over a very short period of time. Yeah. It's a fabulous example of serial innovation to completely take a disease down. Yeah, and if you're the company that does not have that final step, then, you, you know, you just have to sort of lay down your sword and, and go on because, you know, and sort of applaud and be like, well, we cured it. I mean, maybe it's not our revenue, but it's cured. We can go look for something else. And that seemed like that was going to be your job. That was my job. Yeah. So so that that was exactly what the board, with the board, we had a lot of um, discussion about, you know, is it over? Should we just sell the company? Is there anything else here? Should we try to stay in HCV and compete? There were other companies that did that. Or should we do what you said? Lay down the sword in HCB, focus on other things, and focus, not not everything, focus on a strategy that actually works. Yeah. And so when I came to the board and we started to talk about it and talk about me being the CEO, I came not just to the notion of I'll do it, but I, I'll do it because this is my idea about what we should do. And they got very enthusiastic about that. Let's try that instead of sell the company or instead of and, and so from the early stage, very early stage. We laid that strategy out, and we have stuck to it absolutely 100%. Every year at our strategy meeting, I show them my original slide from 2011, 2012, 
So remember, you know, this is what we agreed on. And here's check, check, check. We're, we're marching down that strategy. And the strategy was this invest in scientific innovation to make transformative drugs for serious diseases in specialty areas. That was the that's the mantra. You ask anybody at Vertex, they can tell you that that's that, it. that yeah. 30 second, you know, elevator pitch. And and obviously what made a difference was we had this cystic fibrosis program that had been in the company for, you know, 13 years at that point, I think 14 years. Um, and they had cracked the biology of this disease. So one of the things I always say to the company and to like these consulting things when they, or these uh, you know, uh, fireside chats when they come to them uh-huh. is um, there's really two steps to making a medicine, a breakthrough medicine. One is cracking the biology of the disease, meaning you prove that the target that you're going after when you inhibit it or activate it actually will cure the disease, stop the disease, or modify the disease, whatever it is. That's number one. And then the second step is now make a medicine that does that. Yeah. And those are two very different things. And I think many companies get a little confused. They try to make the medicine before they've cracked the biology or, or they think that cracking the biology is enough so they don't really make a medicine. And we've always divided it into those two things. And, and the reason I was so... Um, one of the reasons I was so enthusiastic about Vertex in 2011-12 is I had started to see the first data where I was convinced they, the San Diego group had cracked the biology. They hadn't made a medicine really yet. Yeah, they yeah. had Kaleidico for a very tiny part of the population, but, but they had cracked the biology of this thing. And now it was a matter of putting a massive chemistry and preclinical effort on it to make the medicines. And that's what we did. We stopped doing everything else, stopped cancer, stopped flu, stopped you know, all this other stuff we were doing, immunology, painful as that was for me, and we just focused our resources on cystic And this, this involved um, layoffs, yeah? So to get out of HCV, we had a sales force of several hundred people, and a commercial organization of several hundred people that were um, dedicated to HCV, and we laid that entire sales force off, which was really hard. But all these scientists were working on something other than CF. You yes. just redirected them. We did. Yeah. So okay. we, one of the things we did is, even in the toughest times when we were losing three to $500 million a year, and they, they were tough times for three or four years, we never laid off a single scientist, and we were we were very public about that. We were when I say laid, never laid off. Sure, there were people that got fired for whatever. But, sure, but we never did a layoff. We never said here's 50 scientists that are going to have to, or a site that has to go just to save money. Yeah, we 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 said you know we're going to focus our scientists here. We're going to redirect as many scientists as we can. We're not going to lay off scientists, and our R and D budget has our research budget even has increased. Every year, stay the same or increase. All right, so let's talk about that. Was really important for the organization because otherwise, if you say you're going to invest in scientific innovation and you're committed to it, and then you just start laying off, you know, fifty here, two hundred there, two hundred there, nobody believes you. Yep, and and you know, laying people off and buying shares back instead of actually reinvesting in your R and D. So I, I think I think I read someplace that that Vertex was maybe five billion in the hole before they ever turned their profit. Is that right? Yeah. yeah I mean, that's a long way up. You've got to climb. Um, so I want to talk about. Two things. One is how you're able to reinvest that money in R&D and what your shareholders think of that. Well, let's start there. Let's, sure, let's start there. Sure. Um, so there were two or three reasons, I think, that we were able to do it. One, because we had that small SG&A budget. Even after we launched the first drugs, even today, we still are investing the vast majority of our operating expenses in R&D. And we will for the future. We'll, we will never have a large SG&A budget. So part of it is just the unique business model. Yeah. That, that allows you not to spend it on SGNA, which allows you to spend it on R&D. So that's one. Two, investors have to fundamentally believe in your scientific engine. And there have been so many failures in the industry in general that they are realistically skeptical 
about these scientific engines. I think one of the reasons why they've trusted us perhaps a little more is we do have this proven track record of success, right? We have an HIV drug. We have the HCV drug. We now have three or four, at least, mm-hmm. um, CF drugs. We're one of those five companies that has done it over and over. And I think that has bought us the trust of our investors that we can do it again and that's worth it. You have to earn that trust every single year or two years by uh-huh. showing them that you're continuing to make medicines. But if you look since 2011, right, Kaleidico or Canby, yeah. Tezacaftor, Ivacaftor, right. and now Triples in a five or six year period of time, they're seeing the sustained production of medicines that are working in the clinic. So the next thing would be not only a new drug, but outside of CF. Definitely. Yeah. And we have a number of programs that look and smell a lot like CF, meaning they get the underlying cause of the disease, they're transformative, they're for serious diseases that don't have a lot of therapies, and they're specialty, just like CF. So sickle cell disease is a, is a disease we're working on. I actually just announced this morning that, huh. uh, CRISPR just announced this morning that the gene editing approach that we partner with them on um, is moving forward into the clinic. So that's a curative therapy for sickle cell disease, serious disease, very few therapies today, you know, novel technology, obviously, potentially curative, yep. um, in a specialty area that you can, again, don't require a large SGNA budget for, therefore you can reinvest back. Uh, there's a disease called alpha-1 antitrypsin disease, which is another genetic disease. Um, it's a protein-folding disease, and again, like CF, in the liver instead of in the lung. Um, and again, we're, we're doing the same thing, trying to make a small molecule that would correct that protein, cure the disease, or stop the disease, and be specialty markets, same, same sort of way. So we have a number of those in our pipeline, 10 or 12 of those projects that look and smell a lot like that. And we've said that we hope to have at least one, maybe more in the clinic, this next year, 2018. All right, so the other aspect of this is your recent um, giving. Right? You had this 10-year, $500 million initiative to give back across a long line of a long long list of ways you're going to do this that's a lot of money right and so um i saw that and i thought you know a lot of companies give a lot of companies will tell you that they make sure that their patients have access to the drugs these things that you have to do if you're going to be in this business but this is it seems beyond it and one thing in particular i noted um your learning laboratory right so you can talk about this versus the learning laboratory it's 3,000 square feet you not only have it built specifically for this purpose no other purpose beyond this but you hired somebody to run it Mm -hmm. and you hired a black female to run it like Mm -hmm. every step of that is right Mm -hmm. so how did you guys whose idea was this how did it um let's let's talk about giving in general first because you know i think one of the special things about vertex which predates me by the way is um just a long history of giving community service it was something that was built into the culture from when the company was really young we didn't always have a lot of funds to do it, but yeah. we dedicated a lot of employee time to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and I always say giving is in our DNA at Vertex. It really is. Our employees believe in it. They want to do it in lots of different forms, which made this whole thing both easier but more meaningful, I think, to them too. The way we had done giving because of, of, of you know, who the company was and because our finances were fluctuating all over was tremendously variable. Some year we had giving campaigns in all kinds of different parts of the business. Research would do some giving, development would do some, commercial would do some giving. And basically the amount was really dependent on like how much are we losing this year or how much can we afford to do. And so it was highly variable. Um, And it was also very um, diffuse. So so we were giving to all all kinds of things in in many, many, many different areas. And usually small amounts spread quite thin across many years. Mm -hmm. And so as we got into this year, the senior leadership team sat down and said, look, um, 
giving isn't our DNA, and we want to do it, and we actually want to do more of it. But let's do it in a way where we can focus resources on things we all co-believe in and, and put more resources down to make a bigger impact in these areas. Um, and so the idea was bring the giving together into a more centralized kind of um, operational approach, focus it on four areas that we're going to discuss, and we'll talk about in a minute, that we discuss with the company and we get buy-in on, put a lot more resources in because now we can see our revenue stream going for the next 10 years. So we can actually make a 10-year commitment of a lot of money um, and then, then go ahead. And so we had a long discussion with the company through our all-employee web chats and surveys and other things about areas that we believe in. And we decided yeah. on these four areas that we're going to focus on. So one is the CF patient community, but that's very broad. That's patients, you know, free medicines, co-patients, but it's more than that. We have a scholarship program for siblings of patients because they often get left out of the equation in terms of being able to go to school. You know, we have programs for transportation. We have program. We have a cookbook for CF patients because it they have a very special dietary requirement. So it's it sort of support the CF community broadly through a whole range of philanthropic activities, including free medicines, et cetera. STEAM education, and we'll come back to that. STEAM, STEM education now. STEAM education is something you know we've done for many years. It's something we really believe in both as a community service, but also somewhat selfishly as training our workforce of the future. So we'll come back to that in a second. Training young physicians and scientists. So th this is an area where, unfortunately, because of the cuts in the NIH budget and the clinical reimbursement pressures, um, the funding for these young physician scientists is largely going away and we're losing generations of them. We, we want to do that and give back to that. We can talk about on that in a second. And then what I'd call... Um, really our own community, our local community. We want to be good community citizens, not only in Boston, but in San Diego where we have a site, in the UK where we have a site, et cetera. And I'll tell you about those programs. But they're, they're diverse from supporting schools to, <coughs> excuse me, uh, other things in the innovation economy, digital economy, um, literally parks in the community and things like that. So those four years. $500 million, 10-year commitment, including 50, a committed $50 million for STEAM, and $10 million for a foundation, because some of this gets better run through a foundation. Uh -huh. $10 million initial funding will likely grow, but you're easier to do some of this through a foundation, some of it through the company. Um, so, so that's the general outline of it. Um, so now let's come to the STEM education in the learning lab. So, so you know, the way I've explained this in, in Boston is we're both sitting in a sea of talent that we don't develop, at, almost at all, certainly not fully. And we are competing for talent, not only company against company in Boston or Boston, but Boston against New York. Not only Boston against New York, but the U.S. against China, et cetera. And the innovation economy, which is life sciences and tech, is going to be won or lost based on talent. And so we as a community of in the innovation economy have an obligation to develop this talent. Otherwise, we're wasting our most important resource. And so STEM education is part of a way of developing this future workforce is important. But it's much more than that because it's a way of unlocking the opportunity for everybody in Massachusetts and Boston, not just for the few who go to MIT, right? Yeah. So, so, so that was the idea. So how do you do that? Now we come back to the fact that I think kids get hooked on science, not college. So, yeah. so we, could, we do and can, can give college scholarships and fellowships and all that. But we decided to focus on high school from beginning to end, and now we're moving it back into junior high school. 
And we said, how do we do that and what's the need? This, this was when I first started. This, this was my idea. So I, I came up with the, with the um, learning lab. And what was very clear when you went around and talked to Boston Public School teachers and principals and superintendents was the, both from the equipment standpoint and from the, frankly, knowledge, teacher knowledge standpoint, they were just ill-equipped to teach modern science, you know, to teach DNA sequencing, mm-hmm. to teach hydrogen-powered cars, to teach. They just didn't have the laboratories, the equipment, and frankly, often the teachers who, who could do that. And so the idea was, how, how could we contribute to that and, and fulfill both our goals in STEM, but also our goals in being a good neighbor as we moved down to the seaport, which had a number of these underprivileged schools, public schools. And so we came up with this idea, we'll build a learning lab, dedicated 3,000-square-foot lab, full-time teacher, as you, as you mentioned, Melody Knowles, who's an African-American PhD and teacher, by the way. She's a biochemist and teacher. Um, but we also staff it with our employees. So our employees teach down there, which is a very important part of this for them. Um, and the idea is we bring over a 1,000 Boston public school kids a year through the lab, through a very organized curriculum. So it's not just a show-and-tell, show up one day and do an hour project, but there's a series of experiments and curriculum that they complete. You know, starting with some basic math and measuring skills, pipetting skills, et cetera, but, but going a long way. I mean, they do a forensic project at the end of one of these where they sequence DNA and they actually determine who was the criminal, right? And, and, and they're doing... And that's something that's fairly sophisticated. They build yeah. hydrogen-powered cars. Yeah. They, they do stuff yeah. that's reasonably sophisticated. Um, um, we have you know fully equipped labs, so we equip the lab. We actually pay for their transportation because the school system couldn't yeah. do that. We pay yep. for their food because that was another problem. Yep. Um, we pay the insurance. Um, and, and, and so there's that piece of it. Then of those, 35 of those kids are invited for a summer internship, high school internship program where they spend the morning in the learning lab and the afternoon working somewhere in the company. They're paid. It's a paid internship. Of those, we then pick, at the very end, two kids a year get a full college scholarship to any UMass institution, room, board, books, tuition, everything, um, um, as long as wherever they get in. Yeah. Um, so you think about it, two sort of times four of this, so that's eight kids at a time going through. Um, so there's this program that sort of tries to pull all the way through um, and, and into college. But the other thing that we realized as we began to do it that probably as, is as impactful as teaching them science skills is we have a whole section now where we teach them life skills. So we teach them how do you put a resume together? How do you dress for, for when you go to work? Yeah. How, how do you do an interview? We, we do mock interviews with them. How do you shake someone's hand and look them in the eye? And what does that mean? And why is it important to come to work on time? And yeah. What if you're not going to make it to work on time? What do you what, what do, do you do? do? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, all of us, these are things our parents taught us, right, generally. But for a lot of these kids, they don't have parents who are going to teach them that. So guess what? They don't know. Once you, once you teach them, they catch on just as quickly as anybody of else. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, and they're really good at it. But, but I really think that's, the, um, that's one of the big things. And, and I'll tell you, you know, the story. It's <coughs> my favorite story. And um, I'm sort of, that got to me about how you change, what changes for these kids. So... I usually meet with the summer interns right at the beginning and we sort of talk about what it means to be at Vertex and who is Vertex and all that. And then I meet with them at the end because I like to hear about their experience at the very last day. We do like a picnic lunch and I, I talk to them. And, um, and so I always ask them, like, what did, how, did your, how did this change your thinking? How did it change your thinking about things? And the second year, I think we were doing it, this young junior African-American woman um, raises her hand. She's sort of shy and she goes, 
you know, I, I live in the neighborhood here and I saw the building being built, which is I remember when the building was built because it was one of the first buildings that was built in that neighborhood. And she said, to me, it looked like this big black sort of starship enterprise, this black glass on the outside. So it was a really scary looking place. And she said, now I came and I worked here this summer and I realized like, I want to work here and I can work here. Yeah. And, and to me, it's, it's, it's that switch, right? It's the connection from scary, foreign to opportunity. And hope and and yeah and right so not only I want to work there but that is something that I can do that is accessible mm-hmm. to me that was in, that's within my reach um, I mean you know you know like we think about your your life right you're obviously very bright but every, at every turn you were encouraged totally. every turn you totally. said can I do this totally. and people said yes 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 totally. and for people who don't have that imagine if those things hadn't happened to you I always tell people I had the easiest road possible I had great parents with Resources. I had mentors at every stage who pushed me beyond what I thought I could do and helped me get there. <clears throat> when I see some of these kids and you hear these stories of what they're doing, you know, taking the bus for an hour and a half to get to their high school, yeah. to the better high school, and then at the end of the day, taking the bus an hour to take a music lesson, and then, and by the way, they can't afford the instruments, so they're, I mean, and then they come out the other end and they're successful. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It is. It's yes. Amazing. Uh, I don't. This isn't like a retirement question. It's more about your legacy, I think. So when you think back about your career thus far, the patients that you've seen, uh, you know, you've been involved in startups, um, Vertex, Abbott, what, what do you think is the most impactful? <clears throat> yeah, I think, I think, I hope there will be a couple of things. I mean, one, I love changing the lives of one patient at a time. As a physician, that's a very gratifying thing. But I'll tell you, changing millions of lives by making a medicine like Humira, a medicine like Kalitra, a medicine like Orcambia or Clitical, it's a different feeling. So I hope, I hope in some way, you know, I'll be remembered as, you know, being involved with and leading the effort to change the lives of millions of people with serious diseases. That's that would be a great legacy. And then the other part of it is, um, what I'm trying now to start some giving back things. I just gave a gift to the Brigham for an endowed professorship in translational medicine. I want to try to make sure that I can help create the next generation of translational physicians and scientists. I think they're imperiled right now because of the things we talked about. What, you mean the cutting and the, funding? The cutting funding yeah, yeah. and the re- clinical reimbursement things, and some other things too. You know, So I teach, I gave this gift. I'm trying to do a lot of things that came, we're doing fellowship programs and young faculty awards from Vertex. I want to try to do everything I can to create this next generation because the fact is we are sitting at the threshold of what could be the most exciting time in biomedical Innovation. I mean, the last 50 years has been amazing. If we don't screw it up, the next 50 years will be Agreed. truly astounding. Yeah. yeah. And the only, the, there are several ways we can screw it up. But one major way we can screw it up is if we don't train that next generation of translational physicians and physician scientists to do this, because that's all about the talent. And I just, I, I think that would be such a shame because all the pieces are in place. So those are the two things I, I hope I'll be remembered um, as. And then I guess the final thing is, you know, my family's very special to me. I mentioned that <laughs> yeah. they supported me all the way along. Yeah. It wasn't so easy for them sometimes. Um, so, you know, I hope, I hope they'll remember me as being good to them. Yeah. All right, that is the end of the First Rounders podcast with Jeffrey Lydon. Jeff, thank you for taking the time and fitting me into your schedule. Uh, listeners, you may be able to tell that Jeff was in New York on business. He managed to squeeze me in. I brought recording equipment up to a hotel room, and we, we recorded there. Uh, very much appreciate that. I will put more information on Jeff on our blog, Trade Secrets, which you can find off the homepage of Nature Biotechnology. Uh, 
Um, if you have comments about this podcast, our journal, the blog, anything else that we do, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech, and you can speak to us there. I should say thank you again to Johns Hopkins University and their MBEE program, the Master of Biotechnology Enterprise and Entrepreneurship Program. For more information, go to enterprise.jhu.edu. And anything else? I don't think so. So I will talk to you later, and goodbye. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.